Good morning, everyone. If you find yourself in need of a Bible this morning, you should find one stuck in the back of a pew nearby. As Nick mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're in the midst of a a mini-series here that we've entitled Death to Life, and um, and it's a pretty self-evident title. If, if you read the passage that we're working through right now, um, that is the point. And you were dead, but God made you alive. That's, that's the summary of these 10 verses that we're spending last week, this week, and next week on. Um, but we're, we're slowing down and focusing on this because Paul doesn't just give us the summary version here. He unpacks it, and he does it very extensively. As we saw last week, when he describes what it means to be dead, he gives us the dimensions, the multiple dimensions of what that means. And as I suggested last week, when we read and when we meditate on that passage, you should picture digging your own grave. And Paul basically just keeps shoveling and shoveling. It's it's well beneath six feet under by the time we're done. When we talk about what is it that human beings need or what is wrong with humanity or what is the problem, Christianity defines it in tremendously dark terms. But here this week, uh, as we pick up in verse four, we're going to get to the other side of the equation. Okay, we're, we're going to contrast last week with this week. We're going to move from you were dead to God made us alive. And even as I read it this first time, I want to give you the punchline right up front. I want you to notice how much the language is focused on two things. One, God's good character, and two, our experience of that goodness. Okay. And this, this is important. Before we even read, this is important because we can have views of salvation or views of Christianity, or views of what God has accomplished in the cross that fall short of this, that see the gospel as the good thing that God has done and treat God as a means to some other end, okay? Like like a generic version of eternal life. Because of this, I no longer die, okay? Or like, um, like a... Um, Hollywood version of heaven, you know, and so we think, all right, so salvation means that not only do I not have to go to hell, but now I get to live in this place where it's perfect, and, you know, there's a vending machine with all my favorite snacks right outside my room, and uh, all of my friends and family are there. Um, It's not that those things don't have truths in them, eternal life, heaven, even forgiveness. It's that Paul wants to to define for us eternal life specifically in the context of a relationship with God. And he does this because Jesus does this. Jesus says, for this is eternal life, that you may know the Father and his Son whom he has sent. What is eternal life? It is a relationship with the God who is life. Okay. So as we read, notice those two things. Notice the depth of the goodness of God's character and notice how being made alive is bound up in our experience of that goodness. It's not just God is good so he made us alive. It's God is good so he made us alive to experience his goodness. Okay, Pick up with me here in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. The realities that are mentioned here, Lord, are spiritual realities. They're things that we can go uh, without seeing. They're things that we can um, forget. 
uh, and yet they are defining things. They are central things. They are the reality underneath our reality things. And so I pray, God, that you would help us this morning by your word and by your spirit to understand what we have in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How much do these verses talk about the character of God? Just make a mental inventory with me. He's rich in mercy. He's a loving God. He saves us by grace through a free gift which extends out of, extends out of his graciousness. Um, and then it says, uh, it, it refers here to his kindness. Okay. Now, all of these things are focused, as I said, on the good character of God. And that's essential. Because notice where verse 4 begins. It begins with the word but, right? And this contrastive conjunction is used here to give hope in a very hopeless place. It is the first breaking through of the light of dawn in the dark night of human experience. In fact, so that we can fully understand that, let's go back to verse 1 and read so that we know the content that precedes that little conjunction. He says here, speaking of all of us, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But, right, do you see how significant that word is? And you were dead, but. Okay. But notice the second word there because it's just as important because it is but God. How different would this sentence be if it finished with but you, right? Then it would be a classic Hollywood film. And you were in dire straits, oppressed by this powerful government, experiencing all the awfulness, bound by, you know, the inhibitions of your childhood, but then you, right, overcame, then you conquered, then you changed your path, then you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. In fact, there is no action for us to take or having taken in these verses, now, we're going to see there's a participation in this. We'll see this next week. I'm not saying that we don't have a part to play here. I'm saying that the but only exists because of the work of God, not because of us. Okay. I'm saying here that the hope, the salvation, the solution that is promised in Jesus Christ is a work of God. Okay. Now, remember on top of that, that the opening verses here are death and are following the course of this world and stuff, as we saw last week, those are not morally neutral ideas. This can't be reduced down to saying, and you were sick, but the doctor made you better. It is, and you were in rebellion, okay? And you were uh, part and parcel with the world that is opposed to God, and you were, as we saw, marching in the armies of the devil himself. It is it is while we were enemies of God that Christ died for the righteousness, for the righteous, right? And so this but is not just hopeful, it's surprising, okay? It's not just a demonstration of God's power, which it is. Taking something dead and making it alive is miraculous. But it is also a demonstration of God's character, okay? It's not just that God is able to save us, God is willing. In fact, beyond willing, he's not just open to the idea, he's been actively pursuing it. He is the reason. 
It's not as if we took God to a negotiating table and said, look, I know as a species we've really messed up. I mean, just look at all these things that are going on. But how about if we do this, then you meet us halfway? We're not present at all. It doesn't say, but God, because, in fact, let's look at this, verse 4, because, but God being rich of mercy, why? Because we were really penitent? But God being rich in mercy because we were really sad? Because we made vows and promises? Because we said that we would do better? Because we gave it the old college try? Even that because is followed not by our actions, but God's. God is rich in mercy. Why? Because of his great love. It's like we peel back a surprise and we find another surprise underneath. It's rushing nesting dolls of God's goodness is what we have here. Okay? Our salvation stems from God's goodness and not our own. It's based on, founded on God's character and not ours. Now, as we'll see, and I'll just push this forward so we get this straight, when you understand that, and when you embrace what it means to live a life with God, it does change your character, and it does demand a change in character. So just speed forward with me to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How were we made? By God in Christ. He's done this. He's made us alive. But notice what it says. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But that change and that transformation and that, uh, that goodness stems out of the goodness of what God has done. It is responsive. Okay? In other words, it is not the cause of God's goodness, but the result. Now, we see this reiterated by the opening word. It says, but God being rich in mercy. And I want you to notice even there, it doesn't just say, but God being merciful, but being rich in mercy. And this is helpful because it helps us to um, set aside an often misunderstood concept, which is that because we are human, we make mistakes, and so we, we fall short of God's goodness. And what God does is, is he just supplements and gives us a little bit of a righteousness loan to get us over the hump, right? And so God says, well, you're pretty good, but I do have these things against you, but I'll, I'll excuse those. It's like, it's like the professor who sees that you got 97 out of 100 questions right and says, I'm just going to give you the extra three. But here it says that God is rich in mercy, and the reason why that's necessary is because we are absolutely poor in righteousness. Okay. It's not that we fall short and God just spotted us a fiver. Okay. It is that we are tremendously in debt and God forgave our debts. Okay. That's what we're talking about here. And yet God's mercy is abundant. And that is huge for us because every once in a while, whether you're a Christian or not, every once in a while you have this sudden experience of your own sinfulness. You suddenly awake to your potential to do tremendous harm in your own life, in the lives of those around you, in, you know, in, in impacting great and small in, in how you serve your employees or your employer. We suddenly get this sense of our own wickedness. We suddenly get this sense of how deep the darkness goes. Last week I mentioned Jekyll and Hyde. And there's a part where, where Jekyll figures out how to get Hyde under control. He kind of overcomes his addiction. And he goes along and then he discovers that Hyde is still with him and always has been. That Hyde isn't the creation of Jekyll in a laboratory, but is actually just the exposing of who he really is. Okay. Have you had that experience? 
Sometimes we even portray it in films and in stories where somebody thinks they're the hero and they discover they're the, actually the villain. Right? When you have those experiences, remember this, but God being rich in mercy. And then it says, because of his great love. Now, even if you're not a Christian today, because of the influence of Christianity on our broader culture, the idea that God is love has gone mainstream. It is a defining characteristic for many people when they think, Who, what is God like? Well, I believe that God is love, or I believe in a God of love, right? Those are common phrases inside and outside the church. And those are drawn directly from Scripture. That's what the Apostle John tells us in 1 John. God is love. And that is, again, his character. It is his nature. It's interesting, isn't it, that John doesn't say God is loving, but God is love. But I want you to notice here that he says something more than that. He says, he says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Okay. This isn't generic, conceptual love. This isn't ideological. When we say God is love, we say that disconnected from anything else. It's part of his nature, it's part of character, it's who he is. But when we say God loves me, it becomes relational. It becomes personal. It steps from the realm of the conceptual to the realm of the experienced. And I want you to notice here that we cross that same threshold it's not just that God is loving, but with that, he loved us, okay? It says, but because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, Paul started with, but God. He started with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And look at how quick he comes back to that there in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Look at how quickly he returns there. You see, what he's suggesting is that the measure of God's mercy or the measure of his forgiveness or the measure of our distance from God or the measure of our rebellion from God is also because of what God has done a measure of his love. And this is part of the problem with our culture co-opting this idea, I believe that God is a God of love, because most of the time it means a God who is indifferent to people's actions, who loves them no matter what they do and allows them to do whatever they want and basically leaves them alone. But the question becomes, what does it cost for God to love in that way? Nothing. It's just a toleration but biblically, the love demonstrated by God is costly. So significantly costly that Jesus took on flesh, became a man, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and bore the full punishment of God's judgment on our behalf. That is the love, the great love with which he loved us. It's a love that came to find the lost. It's a love that came to forgive enemies. It's a love that came to pay the debts and break the chains and endure and experience a consequence that would destroy us to die so that we might live. So on the front end here, we have the question, why did God save? Because of his great mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us. Okay. This is the cause of salvation. This is the root of what has done here. And this is something that's hit upon over and over again in the New Testament. Let's hear it again with clarity from the book of Titus. Titus is also a letter written by Paul, and it also puts emphasis, as we saw, on God's initial work and then our response to that work, okay? But what I want to draw your attention to is just here 
in verse 4 of chapter 3. In fact, let's go back to verse 3 because we'll see the whole picture there. He says here, speaking again to us, all of us here, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Again, notice how broad and involved that definition is. Some of those are things that are done to us. Some of those are things that we do. Some of those are things that would be defined as slavery. Some of them are things that would be defined as ignorance. And some of it we would be defined as active evil. But, again, verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own Mercy. Okay. When you look at the mathematics of salvation in Christianity, the problem is 100% us and the solution is 100% God. We, in the equation, bring our need and God brings his provision. Not because of works we have done, but because of God's mercy. As Paul continues here in Ephesians, he tells us exactly what God has done. And this is important. Because, I, again, I want you to notice here that the way Paul defines what God has done is not merely Christ died for you. Although he says that in many other places. Christ died for you is part of the means to salvation, but it is not the salvation itself. Christ died for you so that you can continue to do whatever you want. Christ died for you so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. Christ died for you. How do we finish that sentence? How does Paul finish it here? Notice what he says here in, uh, in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, three things here. Made alive, raised us up, and seated us in the heavenly places. And what you can't see in the English, although you, you, you can see it, you just can't see that it's all one word, is that all three of these words begin with the same prefix. It's the Greek prefix soon. And by attaching it to these words, we get that idea of with. Okay? So he doesn't say God made us alive. He says God made us co-alive. He doesn't just say he raised us. He co-raised us. And he didn't just seed us. He co-seeded us in the heavenly places. In fact, Paul here is continuing an idea he began in chapter 1. Look again at uh, verse 19 of chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Those are the same verbs, just without that with prefix. So how did God demonstrate his power? In the fact that he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. How did God save us? In the fact that he co-raised us in Christ and co-seated us in the heavenly places. Okay. In other words, this is more than just Christ died for you or even Christ rose from the dead for you. This is because you were in Christ, you have rose with Christ. Because you are in Christ, you have been raised to the heavenly places. Because you are in Christ, you have been seated in the heavenly places. Okay. And so, the first thing we need to see here is, is the, the withedness, the, the fact that this has happened in Christ, that we have been joined to Christ, and therefore what has, God has done in Christ has happened to us. But the second thing we have to wrestle with is, what does it mean? Okay. When we look here at raised with Christ, made alive with Christ, that one at least we have some contextual understanding. 
Because in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and you were dead, and we all know that doesn't mean we are without a heartbeat, right? We all know that that's not talking about physical death, but something deeper than that, spiritual death. And that's why he says, and you were dead walking, right? Living. It's a living death. It's a walking death. It's a breathing death, but it is death nonetheless. And so when we ask here, what does it mean that we've been made alive in Christ? It means that we're no longer dead in the sense that was being talked about, okay? We're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but have been made alive together with Christ But then it goes on and it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I would suggest to you that that brings about two other ideas that we need to wrestle with and understand. And I'll summarize them this way. The first is the presence of God and the second is the power of God. Okay, here's what I mean by the presence of God. When we refer to being seated in the heavenly places with Christ, that means, go back and read Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, seated at the right hand of the Father. It means that we now have a restored relationship with God and spiritually are no longer alienated and isolated from him. But it's as if we exist in his presence. The throne room is no longer off in the distance but we are seated in the throne room with the Father. And again, this is something that Jesus emphasized when he talked about salvation. Think about the story of the prodigal son. How is it defined that everything is set right when the son comes home and he's brought back into the loving arms and family of the Father and experiences the feast of the Father's wealth because he was dead and is now alive. It is inherently, utterly, completely relational. Christianity knows nothing about a godless salvation. And I don't just mean godless in its happening. We already talked about that. You cannot save yourself. You are so dead you can't become alive. You can't fix this. You need God's help. We bring our need. God brings a solution. But how we define that solution is not just in its means, but in its end, okay? Again, consider most imagination versions, literature versions, Hollywood versions of the idea of heaven. And again, the idea of heaven, of a paradise, of an eternal state, of a place where everything that's been wrong is set right, that's not unique to Christianity. Many religions and many irreligious people still have this sense of another world, an afterlife, the better place, whatever it is. But what is unique about the Christian view of heaven? If you turn to the book of Revelation, and we won't do it, this is homework, but if you turn to the book of Revelation and go to the last few chapters where it's described, there is one defining trait that outstrips every other one, and it's not streets of gold, It's the with God presence in the midst of the people reality. Heaven is the place where God is. To enjoy heaven is to enjoy God's presence. Salvation is to be reunited with the God who made us and loves us and desires to be with us. Okay? And so here when it says seated in the heavenly places, it's a restoration of that relationship. It speaks of access. It means that as you are right here, right now, in your mundane making oatmeal or between catching emails at work, you can experience and enjoy and engage with the presence of God. You can go to him in prayer knowing that nothing stands between you because all obstacles have been removed in Jesus Christ and just be with him. Enjoy him. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism begins with the statement that the purpose of man is to love God and enjoy him forever. This is why John Piper famously said, God is the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ is not just you no longer will go to hell, 
the good news is you have been reunited with your father. And we see that here. Seated in the heavenly places. But it's more than just the presence of God. It's also the power of God. Go back to chapter 1 again. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Notice verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And then notice, and gave him his head over all things to the church. The point here is if we are seated in the heavenlies, we are no longer under the powers and principalities. In other words, we are no longer slaves. And we saw this extensively last week as we looked. We, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, follow the course of this world. Follow the spirit of the power of the air. Succumb to our physical nature and the lust of our desires. All of that is enslaving. It's not just what you want to do. You have no choice. But when it says here that we have been seated in the heavenly places, it is a recognition that we are no longer subject to those powers and principalities that we are no longer slaves. And to be honest, this is what Paul is going to spend the entire second half of the book of Ephesians walking out. And so I'll just give you one illustration. This is what he says in chapter 4. Put on the new humanity that is in Christ and no longer walk in the old humanity. That's not just a command. It's an empowerment. Because now you have a new humanity. Okay, the idea here is one of new possibility. It's one of a capability to righteousness that you didn't have beforehand. And a lot of this is bound up in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul looks at it from a different lens here, and he basically says not only do you have access to the throne room, but in Christ you become part of his body and you are no longer under all of these things. This is why Jesus says about sin that he who sins is a slave to sin. But then he says, but I've come to set you free. Okay. Paul's getting at the same thing here from a different way. But again, remember this is a spiritual reality. It's one that can be forgotten. It's one that can be neglected. Which is why in a few chapters, Paul is going to say, put your mind on heavenly things. Live out this unseen reality as it is. Enjoy both the presence of God and the power of God in your life. But I want you to notice that although we've built up the, what God has done, okay, we still haven't explained what comes after what God has done towards what end, for what purpose. And so it's not just Jesus died for you, it's Jesus died for you and in him God rose you, in him God seated you in the heavenly places. That's what God has done. But what's the end game? What's the purpose? Where is he going? When I was a kid, and even as an adult, I played a lot of Mario Kart. And there's this happening in Mario Kart if you drive off the track where this dude in a cloud, a Lakitu, flies off, picks you up, and puts you back on the track. That's how some of us think about salvation. I really screwed up. I needed some help. God got me out of the ditch, and then you're just back to driving the same old race. Okay. But I want you to notice here, verse 7, so that... Now, if you guys attend this church often, if you've heard me preach very often, you know that I'm big on connective tissue words. I drew a lot out of that little word, but, right? And here, so that means something in particular. So that means purpose. We could also translate it in order that. Or with the goal in mind that. Why did God save you? In one sense, we've already seen that the cause of that is God saved you because he is kind and loving and good and gracious. 
But what was the purpose of God saving you? Look at what it says in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He saved us so that for the rest of time eternal, that's what the coming ages mean, it means tomorrow and every day after, forever and ever, amen, he may do what? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. It begins with the goodness of God and it ends with it. And, and not ends in terms of like chronology, but end as in purpose, as goal, as in where we're headed. God was kind to you so that he might be kind to you forever. Do you see that? That's, that's what Paul is saying here. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, let's get something straight right now. Because God is love, and because kindness is a part of God's character, kindness is something that all human beings have already experienced from God. This is not something that he withholds and reserves for the worthy. Okay. It's just part of who he is, and it's how he feels about humanity. I'll show you. Look at Acts chapter 14. Paul here is talking to people who do not know the God of Scripture. In fact, their religion is such that they're pretty sure that Paul is a God come in the flesh because he just did something they can't understand, a miracle. And he's trying to slow them down from offering sacrifices to him and Barnabas. But as he does so, he doesn't say, you've never experienced the real God. He says, you have. And notice what he says here in chapter 14. Look at what he says in, well, let's look at the whole thing in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Notice verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. And the idea here is not a prophet who says, all your religions are wrong, but I know the truth. What did God leave himself a witness? How did he do it? For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, every experience we have of goodness and joy and gladness in the world comes from God himself because he's the giver of all good gifts because he built the world to bring satisfaction. That kindness is universally experienced. But more than that, look at the book of Romans. Now here Paul is speaking to very judgmental Jews. He's speaking to people who believe they know God and are greatly critical of all those sinners out there, but won't identify and recognize their own sins. And I want you to notice what he says here in chapter 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What's the assumption here? They are actively experiencing the kindness and even the mercy of God as it is. Because God has been patient and long-suffering with their sin and even their self-righteous, judgmental hypocrisy. Why? Because he wants them to know him, to leave those things behind, to enter back into his arms, and to be with him. We all have sampled God's goodness. And the reason we've done so is because God is good. He is indiscriminately good. 
but his desire is that we would drink it fully. What his desire is, is that we would experience all there is. Go back to the book of Ephesians and listen to this again as he says here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You've seen it, but you haven't seen all of it. You've tasted it but there's more to experience. You've sampled it, but he wants you to delve into the depths of it. And, And this is God's purpose, to demonstrate to you the depths of his kindness. Now, we need to do a little bit of semantics for just a minute here. Because sometimes we look at our life and we go, you know, life is pretty difficult and the problems are pretty big and I'm not sure that I'm seeing the kindness of God. But I would suggest to you at the very least we need to begin by recognizing that most of us don't want a kind God, we want a nice God. And by nice we mean a God who won't allow any pain. When I was younger, Uh, late teenage years, my cousins were very young and they were chasing each other around the house. And the older one went out our front door, which had a screen door, and the screen door slammed just as the younger one went through it. Or technically only part of him went through it, his foot. Went right under the door. The rest of him stayed inside the house. It was a pretty gross injury, one that required a doctor. So we took him to the doctor, but he was only like five years old. And as he was sitting there receiving stitches, he sat up, he looked the doctor in the eye and with a big grimace, he said, you're not being very nice to me. (laughs) But the doctor was being tremendously kind. His touch was healing, even though it was painful. His intentions were good. And the consequence of his intervention was a very good thing. But it's not always easy to see. And I'd say the same thing to you if you're not a Christian. Not only, as Paul warns, can we presume on the kindness of God and say, if God was really mad at me, things would be a lot worse, not recognizing his kindness or his forbearance or his patience. Or we can take credit for the goodness of God. We can be like the king of Babylon and look around and say, this is what I have made, not recognizing that God is a good giver. And that even our talents and our opportunities are God-given. Okay. We can neglect all those things. But God's intention is the ultimate kindness, which is the restoration both of our relationship with him as well as the restoration of who we were meant to be as human beings in the image of God, who not just experience the character of God but reflect it who not just experience the character of God, but are transformed by it. And that kindness sometimes means hardship. That's why the New Testament says over and over, Christians, brothers, sisters, expect to suffer. But know, Paul says, that we can rejoice in our suffering, Romans chapter 5, because suffering produces character. And character produces perseverance, and perseverance hope, and that hope will not disappoint. It's why Romans 8 says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, so that they might be conformed into the image of his Son. If you know Jesus, then your deepest desire doesn't always win, it's not always visible, but your deepest desire is to become like Jesus. And through the kindness of God, you will. But even there, notice here, this isn't just God is going to be kind to you until you're what you should be, and then you're on your own. It's not God is going to supplement and rehab you until you're healthy, and then you're on your own. No, for the ages to come, that he might show the immeasurable kindness. There's more and more and more. And the things that he wants to root out from your life 
And the things where he wants you to change and the places where he demands repentance are a hindrance to the full experience of God's goodness. And so he's committed to rooting those things out. But there's a second idea here, and this is where I want to close. This is where Ephesians, as a book, gets a little mind-blowing. It's where it pulls back the curtain and doesn't just show what's happening in human endeavors and in God's relationship with people, but at the cosmic level. Because when he says here in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ towards us in Christ Jesus, the word there for he might show is demonstrate. And the way we've been reading it is that he would demonstrate that to us. And I think that's appropriate. But if you were to read it in Ephesians, it's also that he might demonstrate it to everybody. Okay. In other words, we are evidences of God's goodness and kindness. We are trophies of his grace. I'll show you what I mean. Turn over a chapter to chapter 3. Okay, look at verse 8. Paul says to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring delight to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now that's a lot to unpack. And we're not going to do it all this morning. All I want you to see here is that what God is doing in the church is as a demonstration to the powers and principalities and, and not Caesar and his minions. The powers and principalities in the heavenly places. You remember the book of Job? where Job discovers that his life has become a contest between Satan and God. And what's really on the line? Is God good enough? Good enough to be embraced in the midst of suffering? Good enough to be embraced apart from his good gifts? Can you really love the giver and not just the gifts? Those are the things that's on the line. And Job becomes a demonstration of God's goodness, an evidence of his kindness. It seems to be the same idea here. Now, I don't think we can read this intention that God would make you a permanent and eternal evidence of his goodness without thinking of a similar statement in the book of Exodus. Because God says something similar to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Listen to what he says in Exodus chapter 9. He says this in verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay. He says, Pharaoh, don't forget that the reason you're the boss is because I'm going to show my power. But notice it has both elements that we saw with God's kindness. I'm going to show the power to you and I'm going to show the power through you to the whole world. He says, I'm going to demonstrate who I am in contrast to you, little weak human pharaoh. And that's why I've put you in power, is to prove my goodness. And the exodus is a demonstration, is it not, of the power of God and the weakness of Pharaoh and his gods. But how much better what we're told about God's intentions for us in Jesus Christ he doesn't say, for this reason I've raised you up so that I might demonstrate my power to all the world. He says, for this reason I've raised you up that I might demonstrate my kindness to all the world. Here's where I want to finish. God has a vested interest in being good to you. I always feel like this is too trite of a way to put it, but it'll get us there. His reputation is on the line. Okay. He is committed to kindness because you will be an evidence of the depth of who God really is. Now, again, what this suggests to us as we close 
is that the goal of God's salvation is not just to save us from, but to save us to. And that's not enough. It's not just to save us from Satan and sin and death, but to save us unto a relationship of God for eternity where we experience the full depth of his goodness. That's the agenda. And when we settle for smaller salvations that leave us upright but independent, that leave us, uh, you know, uh, still running but not perfected, that leave us far from death but also far from God, we miss what the gospel is. We miss how good the good news is. And I would just say this. Wherever you're at this morning, you can probably say, like the prophet, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But right now, not someday, right now, God is setting for you a table filled with new and deeper delicacies of his goodness. Don't just taste and see. Enjoy, experience, lean in, savor. Because that's what God saved you for. Let's pray. God, we're so aware of the permanency of death, of physical death, of the inability we have to avoid it and the irreversibility of it in human life. And so when we hear that we were dead and you made us alive, we rejoice because death is a great enemy. But let us not settle for a salvation that saves our bodies and leaves them to some some other end than the fullness of a relationship with God. God, we rejoice in your character, your mercy, your grace, your love, your kindness. And we want to know it more fully. And if this passage is true, then instead of praying, God, please be kind to me, We ask instead that you'd help us to see your kindness. That we would be able to see the places that are hard and even painful in the context of the God who is committed to doing good for us. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like the elder brother who lives in the house with the very embodiment of goodness and yet lives independently and apart from that enjoyment, and doesn't experience all the blessings and resources available to him. There are some of us here this morning that need to hear the Father's words to that elder brother, Son, all I have is yours. Soften our hearts where they are hard. Instill in us a hunger for more. And let us be devoted to make your end, your purpose, your goal in our life, our end, our purpose, our goal. We thank you that you have intervened. We thank you that you desire to love us and to know us and for us to experience you and your love the rest of our days. And we just praise you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.